he had had a, a number of different vice presidents. Um, and for his fourth campaign, he chose a guy named Harry Truman from Missouri, who was this kind of straight-talking guy who was known for like swearing and being foul-mouthed and who didn't want to be uh, the vice president. He, when he was at the Democratic Convention in 1944, and um, they told him that FDR wanted him to be the vice president, his response was, tell him to go to hell. <laughs> and then they said, no, seriously, he wants you to be the vice president. And they had him on the phone, but they didn't actually put FDR on the phone with Harry Truman. He's like, uh, I don't believe you. Like, I don't, uh, he's like, he said, uh, I could go down the street, this is in this moment where he's being told that he's going to be the vice president. He says, I could go down the street and I could ask 10 people to name any of the last three vice presidents and nine of them couldn't tell you. Why would I want to do that? Right? But he, he had this charm, but from that kind of way of talking that people liked. And um, he had served on this committee that had been there to kind of root out corruption in the... Um, businesses that were arming um, the military. And so he was viewed as kind of clean in that way. And so FDR on the phone, and, and they can hear the phone, it's like being held in his hand, says, tell him if he wants to split the Democratic Party in the middle of a war, then he can go ahead. And then Harry Truman said, okay, fine. FDR did not include Truman in almost any of the talks or negotiations. He was one of these vice presidents who just didn't have a big role. And when he got the um, phone call, he was sitting and having a glass of whiskey with uh, some of his friends in the Senate. He loved being in the Senate. He had run a, that important Senate committee and he really had wanted to stay in the Senate. That's why he was like, go to hell, I don't wanna be vice president. So he's hanging out in the Senate, he gets a call and they say, come over to the White House right away. Um, and keep it quiet. And he walks over to the White House and he says that what he thought was going to happen was that FDR was going to be on the phone and ask him to like be a liaison to some um, foreign leader or something. And he walks in and there is sitting Eleanor Roosevelt. And she says, come here, sit down. And she puts her arm around him and she says, Harry, the president has died. And he says he had never considered the fact that FDR would die until that moment. And his reaction, he was really shocked. And then he turned to Eleanor Roosevelt and he said, is there anything I can do for you? And she looked at him and she said, is there anything I can do for you? Because you're the one who's in trouble now. <laughs> Which is true in some ways. He's just become president after this person who for many Americans is like the only president they remember. He's right. People don't really know who he is. Um, and actually, for the first few months that he's president, um, he says he like, didn't even really feel like the president. He called one of the senators and he said, I'm, he said, the president is submitting his nomination for this job. And the senator said, oh, so the president signed that before he died? And Truman said, no, I mean me. <laughs> Which I guess it's weird that he was talking to the third person mm -hmm. as well. But... Uh, as often happens, like people warmed to this new president. Like people are excited at the time that there's a new president. And what they liked about him was this style that he had that was foul mouthed and shoot from the hip. And he came to kind of like 
being president. Um, he had a um, he had two signs on his desk. One said, "The buck stops here," which meant at the end of the day, I make the decisions. And the other was a Mark Twain quote, which said um, something like, "Always do what is right. It will." make a few people happy and it'll astonish the rest. And that was kind of his brand was I'm this guy from Missouri. He wasn't highly educated. He'd basically been uh, in politics since he was in his twenties. And before that he was from a pretty poor family. Um, and he just had this kind of folksy way of being. Um, by the time that, um, that Truman takes office, um, Germany's defeated, um, or at least very quickly afterwards, Germany's defeated. And so most of his time running the war is focused on Japan. And the question becomes, uh, should we use the atomic bomb or not? And the two choices that have always been laid out have been that either they were going to have to invade the mainland of Japan and it would be this enormous undertaking. And of course, there was all these wars over these tiny, or battles over these tiny little islands that had huge levels of casualties. Um, and so, you know, numbers like 100,000 American troops dying were thrown around um, afterwards or dropped the atomic bomb, uh, which had never been done before. Um, but since then, um, as we've actually looked at the timing and, what, and the conversations that were going on, it's pretty clear that the question was, Japan would have surrendered um, with a few conditions, one of which being keeping the emperor in power. Um, and the emperor was not part of the like military system. He had this almost godlike role within Japanese culture. A, a religion, Shintoism, you know, had grown up around the idea of the emperor as like related to some godlike um it's not like the emperor was god but the emperor played a religious role truman was very stubborn and felt that there should be an unconditional surrender and decided to drop the atomic bomb um the other real reason why the united states drops the bomb on hiroshima is to send a message to the Russians, to the Soviet Union, um, that one, look, we have an atomic bomb and we're willing to use it. And two, the idea was similar to what happened with Berlin, right? If we could get the J Japanese to surrender only to the United States, then we would have control over Japan and that area. And Russia was, now that Germany was out, Russia was gearing up to move its troops um, into Japan. And so by trying to get them to surrender earlier, Truman was trying to make sure that the United States would be dominant in the Pacific in what was viewed as the next round of the war, which was going to be against the Soviet Union, or at least of tension, which is pretty messed up, like vaporizing an entire city of Japanese people to send a message to the Soviets, um, which I, I think that it was a war crime to do uh, both bombs, both the Hiroshima and the Nagasaki. Uh, although, again, we should, we should note that this isn't, it, the fact that it was an atomic bomb has this like symbolic importance, but more people were killed in Tokyo with just traditional firebombing. Just like in Germany, more people were killed um, in Dresden um, than were killed 
in either of the atomic strikes. But there's something about an atomic bomb that's obviously terrifying. Um, even the very crude atomic bomb that was used in these two attacks. He drops the first one and then calls for a surrender. And Japan got its leaders together and they were all in a room meeting and talking it over. And the assumption is that they probably uh, would have come back with at least a better deal. Uh, and then um, within a few days, Truman orders the dropping of the second bomb. And that one, I think, is uh, pretty unforgivable. Um, and I have always felt that Truman's own personal style as this kind of combative, stubborn, and a little bit of trying to prove himself to be the real president after FDR led to him making this decision when I don't know that FDR would have made that decision, but we'll never know. And the rest of Truman's administration in many ways is defined by the switch from the end of World War II into the Cold War. And immediately there's a couple of events that trigger this conflict. The Berlin um, blockade is the first one, where the Soviets pretty soon after the end of the war um, cut off the western section of Berlin from access to the western part of Germany. Because quickly, these consolidate into East Germany, which is, has a communist government that's friendly to the Soviet Union, and West Germany, which has a capitalist um, government that's friendly to the United States. And basically, blockading West Germany was seen as both a way of keeping East Germans from fleeing to the West through that area, which was what a lot of people did, but also uh, sending a message and testing the United States' resolve in, in defending you know, West Germany, or, or sorry, in defending West Berlin as this little island in the middle of um, Soviet-friendly territory. But there's a moment here where it's like, oh, does that mean we immediately need to invade East Germany? Um, and the decision that gets made is to fly planes in a like constant stream to drop off supplies in West Berlin. Mm -hmm. And that is like showing that the United States isn't going to back down in defending this area, but also not going to war. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also a real effort to build up West Germany and all of the parts of Europe that have been destroyed but that are still friendly to the United States uh, with millions of dollars of aid called the Marshall Plan that um, is named after the Secretary of State and under Truman. And the Marshall Plan really solidifies this idea that Western Europe is like a group of states that are allied with the United States. And the Soviets respond with something called the Warsaw Pact, which is like a group of Eastern European communist countries that are friendly to the Soviet Union. And so you're already seeing this like showdown between the two sides. And in places like Greece, where the control is kind of being fought over by local communist and anti-communist groups, um, the question becomes, if the United States isn't going to invade, are they going to support rebel groups with guns and money? And um, Truman decides in Greece to support um, the group against the communists. 
And that becomes known as the Truman Doctrine. And the Truman Doctrine says the U.S. will support any groups that are going to fight against the Soviet Union, wherever they are, as a form of containment. Mm. Um, and the biggest example of that under Truman is the Korean War, um, which actually takes place in his second term. And everybody thought he was going to lose um, re-election. People were not that fond of him after this initial, like, oh, it's interesting that he's so folksy and stubborn. Mm -hmm. He was not a popular president. There were like people at the convention that was nominating him with these signs that say, I'm just mild about Harry. And like at that convention, two groups of Democrats walk out. The Dixiecrats, um, who are Southern Democrats who are segregationists, were really mad that Truman had taken action to integrate the armed forces. He's the president who says, we're not going to have black and white um, divisions anymore. Um, and they walk out and form their own separate party, and they run against him with a guy named Strom Thurmond, um, who runs on an explicitly segregationist platform. And there's also a group called the Progressives who walk out and say he's not um, liberal enough. Um, and so everyone expects him to lose the election. It's like the way people expected Donald Trump to lose the election. Like before it, everyone was saying there's no way he's going to win. On the night that the returns start coming in, it's like people are noticing that he's, getting, he's doing better than they thought he was going to. He went on a nationwide tour and, and ran against the Republicans really aggressively because Congress had fallen into Republican hands and had been blocking him left and right. And this is where he, he, he would say, I'm out here to give them hell. And people would yell, like, give them hell, Harry, like, fight back. And this kind of fighter image connected with people. And somehow he manages to win the election, um, which was so surprising that uh, newspapers had already printed uh, newspapers that said Dewey defeats Truman. And so there's this famous picture of Harry Truman holding up a newspaper that says Dewey defeats Truman after he won. Um, but his second term gets taken up by the war in Korea. And uh, by now... China, which immediately after their participation in World War II ends up in their own communist, anti-communist fight between Mao Zedong and Shanghai Shek, which Truman decides to not get highly involved in, basically because it seems pretty clear that the communists are going to win. Um, and, you know, Mao Zedong takes over and there's a spreading of communism into other countries in Asia. And we could talk about why you know, uh, communism was appealing to really poor peasant societies where there were, you know, small groups of landowning wealthy people who had basically taken all the wealth for a long time. And the inspiration of the Soviet Union and then of China starts to, you know, create these groups, which in some ways they're more nationalistic than um, communistic. And, and they come out of movements against Western colonialism too, if we remember how, um, you know, the United States and many other powers kept interfering and um, invading and trying to control these countries. It's a lot more complicated than just a question of like economics. It's about um, self-control and, and it's about um, nationalism. Anyway, this leads to uh, the creation of North Korea. And uh, North Korea is a communist state and they view themselves as the legitimate leaders of all of Korea, just like Mao views himself as the legitimate leader of all of China, including Taiwan. And they invade South Korea in 1950. Um, and um, Truman 
who had helped build the United Nations uh, after World War II, which was supposed to be like the League of Nations done right, um, meaning it had some of the same principles. Like, no one will invade anyone. We'll have a security council of the most powerful nations that will act together to stop aggression. Truman sees the North Korean invasion of South Korea as both a violation of the UN charter and of an example of what the Truman Doctrine is all about, which is stopping the spread of communism. And so he goes to the UN and uh, asks for a joint mission of the United Nations to stop this, Um, which means he doesn't ask Congress for approval for war. And this is the first war that's being done without any congressional approval, which Part of the story that we're telling today with all of these modern presidents is that the presidency becomes so powerful and it starts to dwarf Congress. Um, It starts to be doing things that constitutionally were originally given to Congress. Um, And part of this is because the president becomes connected to the American people through the media. Some of this is because the bureaucracy has become so large through two wars that There's now so many organizations within government that just kind of managing that becomes such a powerful job compared to just writing the laws. And some of that is because we're become this imperial power and um, there's a tendency to support strong centralized leadership in those kinds of countries. So Truman doesn't get congressional approval, starts a war in Korea, or at least intervenes to... Um, be on the side of the South Koreans. And it's pretty successful at first. They push um, North Korea all the way back up to the border of China, the Yalu River. And this is under Douglas MacArthur, who was the kind of hero in the Pacific, the way that Eisenhower was the hero um, general in Europe. Um, And MacArthur is this like really arrogant... um, he went to the best schools. He's, he's like in some ways very different than Harry Truman, this guy from Missouri. And MacArthur didn't really respect Truman that much. And he starts saying in the media, I think we should go over the river and attack the Chinese who are helping North Korea. And Truman's reaction is, let's not start a war with China right now. Um, and um, MacArthur doesn't listen to him and is making these statements like, we're going to do this. And when he disobeys Truman's orders and uh, does attack across this river, he's fired. Which MacArthur was in many ways more popular than Truman. And he came back to the United States after being fired, and he had a ticker tape parade in New York City, the guy who's just been fired by the president. And Truman has hearings about whether he should be impeached for doing this. But he always felt that it was like, this is him asserting his power as commander-in-chief. And also, probably good not to get in a war with China. But China comes all the way over the Yellow River, pushes all the way back to the border with South Korea, and ultimately, they don't even really sign a treaty. They just sign a deal that says, we're going to have a demilitarized zone and we're going to pause the war. And to this day, the Korean War is technically still going on because there's North Korea and South Korea. And so the Korean War becomes this weird kind of lost conflict where we didn't lose, but we didn't win. A lot of people, you know, about 55,000 people died. Um, But for what? Um, I guess for part of this large international struggle against communism, um, which Truman is remembered as kind of being the first Cold War. 
president. That's Truman. Um, it's the beginning of the Cold War. He's stubborn. Um, and in many ways, it's feelings about the kind of president that he was that leads to the next president, who's Dwight Eisenhower. And you see often after wars, generals becoming president, um, both because they're, they're you know, seen as heroic and trustworthy, but also because in some ways they're viewed as apolitical. They're like outside, they're not politicians. 